Hungry for change in your life? Feed your ambition with Board Bia Talent Academy's Insights and Innovation Program. Get some incredible food for thought with a fully funded master's from DCU Business School. Learn from world-class innovators with placements in Irish food, drink and horticulture companies. And do it all while bringing home the bacon with a generous monthly bursary. Sound like your cup of tea? Nourish your career prospects by visiting boardbia.ie forward slash talent academy. Applications closing soon. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called butt of a gun and put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, OK, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm not here to hurt you. A brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunny Independent. And this week we're going to talk about scams and fraud and getting caught out for thousands and millions of euro when you click the wrong email. And I am delighted to say that we have Connor Flynn, who is the founder of Information Security Assurance Services, ISAS, not ISIS, ISAS. It's a, specialty, a specialist security consulting firm focusing in the public sector and financial services sector. And before we kick off, though, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, uh, who, who is Magnet Networks, which connects businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland. Thank you to Magnet for sponsoring this podcast. Connor, you're welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Adrian. So we're talking today about a couple of things. I'm going to zero in on a few different uh, names that they're called invoice fraud, invoice redirection fraud, business email compromise fraud. You were telling me before, because we I've written about this, you, you were telling me you had a really good story from years back about what a particular small company in Ireland did, which is kind of the same thing. What, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, this is basically a, a confidence fraud, a con man, as we would we would know it uh, from the past. And basically, this um, person set themselves up as a small company, mm. and they used a name that was not dissimilar to a large multinational printer. Mm. And they uh, started sending out small value invoices to uh, small public sector bodies, small uh, retail organizations, uh, lawyers, offices, doctors, architects, these kind of people who would be small in number. And the invoices were basically saying... Uh, this is the uh, invoice for the toner that we, that you've used for your print printer, printer, print toner. Mm. And it was a small value. It might be 10, 15, 20 pounds as it was in those days. Mm -hmm. And this looked like a reasonable value consumable cost as, as we would describe it. And is typically um, below what we call a purchase order value. So it is a very smart con. And unbelievably, thousands of people paid this invoice having never received a good from this person and they didn't even notice that they're paying it out because it was a small value consumable um, amount of money. Because if you're getting dozens or hundreds of bills in every month yeah. you assume that this is just one of them and you and just And it doesn't call, it. cause any trigger because it's yeah. a low value and the name looks right and I have a printer and I do use toner so I do need these consumables. Very so clever it just, con. It's very easy and it's mm. very smart and it, what it does is uh, like all of these cons are successful and like when, ones 
are going to talk to talk about. It's about social engineering. It's about you know, mm. conning somebody into believing that this is valid, that this is real, and you, their guard is down. So One in that instance, a were they caught? B did they make much money out of it? They made millions, unbelievably. They were caught in the end, and it was actually, uh, my understanding was, a, re- a revenue issue that it was re- with regard to declaration of uh, taxes and uh, a bit like the Capone days. Yeah. Um, but they, they found it very difficult to actually prosecute him because the, the, the confidence trickster didn't actually steal anything insofar as you know, a prosecutable crime. He sent an invoice, never delivered the goods, but he got mm. paid and nobody mm. came looking for the money back. So, so it would have been up to those people to come forward and say, we never got our goods. We never got our goods yeah. and we never got the money back. And because the amounts were small yeah. and targeted. So the, the, the lesson in this was, and unfortunately, I don't mean this in the way it's going to sound, but if you're going to do it, mm. spread it far and wide for a small amount of money. So no one person takes a big hit. Oh. Then yeah. they don't, they, nobody uh, cries foul and, I w- and nobody yeah. alarms it. I would just like to echo uh, Connor's remarks there. We're not telling you yeah. how to commit a fraud. <laughs> However, um, that sort of sage words. Now, the guts of what we're talking about here, some people call it invoice fraud, invoice redirection fraud, mm-hmm. business email compromise fraud. But the basics are that somebody poses as a known supplier or an executive in a company. Mm-hmm. This is a common way of doing it. And then they use an email address or a domain to dupe a company's financial officers or HR yeah. department into transferring lots of money to bogus accounts that they've uh, set up. Uh, we have a few examples mm. in reported examples here in Ireland. Dublin Zoo, for example, was caught in 2017 for 500,000 euro. I think the majority of that money was actually uh, recovered, but that was a case where, according to the reporting at the time, uh, the fraudster uh, posed mm. as a regular supplier, not that dissimilar mm. to the printer toner, but an actual supplier to the zoo. Uh, how they found out who the supplier was. We'll get into that in, in a couple of minutes because there are loads of ways that you can do that. Um, and then uh, just kept billing them for uh, for lots of, um, uh, or, or told them rather that there were new bank account details yes. they had to lodge the money. Um, and that's actually one of the most common ways in the, the invoice fraud mm. is that you, um, you you go after who is an existing supplier. So the, the, the easiest thing to do is not try to become a new supplier to mm. somebody because there's a whole approval system and purchase orders and things like that to go through these days. But you actually target an organization and you write into them and you, up, you say, I want to update my bank details. And there's probably another example you're going to refer to, which would be in the Ryanair one from mm. a number of years ago. And that one was actually a classic case of misreporting because Reiner were um, you know, in the paper and it was covered that mm. they'd been hit for fraud, electronic fraud, they're hacked, they're, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. I think it was four but, or five but, million euro. Just under figure. five million. Yeah. And what happened there actually was it was paper. Somebody had uh, went to the website of a fuel supplier mm. from one of their Eastern European air bases. They had copied the logo and the address details off the website, printed a piece of paper and uh, typed up on it that we have changed our bank details to these new ones, mm. posted it into Ryanair's HQ in Dublin and did nothing more with it. Wow. There was no invoice or anything attached to it. They waited for the next real invoice to come in from the fuel supplier to Ryanair. Ryanair paid it to this new bank account that had been registered and the money was gone. Oh, gosh. So that wasn't even electronic. That yeah. was a paper-based <clears throat> That fraud. was like Leo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can with the, the Pan Am sticker that he was steaming onto the uh, And that's the where the, 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 the ingenuity 
continuity. And this is where simple uh, internal procedures can prevent that. So mm. a very uh, common procedure now is the four eyes principle that we, we talk about in accounting systems where one person gets to uh, put in the change of account details, but somebody else has to validate them. Yeah, They have to ring yep. the original supplier and say, we've got something from you mm. and we, you're looking to change your bank details. You never ring back the number that's on the paper that just came into mm. you. You go back to the original details. So it's a, it's a small amount of validation or verification before yeah. you go to, to we'll, process We'll get things. into that and I'm conscious that when people are in accounts receivable or financial departments, they've got a hundred different things coming in and sometimes they don't think to take five, ten minutes or ten minutes because you can't take ten minutes with everything that comes in because otherwise there's no time uh, left in the day. Other institutions that were hit here, Trinity College was caught for 800,000 euro. Um, this was an interesting one as well because the individual who uh, perpetrated this uh, managed to get in and uh, essentially got the email account, as I understand it, of an employee working in the fundraising arm mm. of the college. But what was interesting was that Trinity successfully recovered reportedly €217,000 of that money, but they spent €184,000 trying it. to recovering it yeah. between, you know, consultants forensic like yourself fees, or forensic yeah, fees yeah. And, and, and lots of... Yeah. Uh, lots of things. And th this is where uh, one of the uh, very important things for organizations to b b focus in on is cyber insurance cover. Because okay, there tell me very, about that. There was, those fees that you mentioned are a very good example of yeah. where there was an outlay involved as a result of an incident, mm. investigation, reporting, the prevention of it reoccurring. And the people look at their general insurance cover and you know, what it covered under their general liabilities. And cyber has been generally being pulled away from it. Mm. And in the last couple of years, the cyber insurance policies will cover things like the response to an incident like this, sometimes the potential losses suffered, mm. uh, if you have a ransomware outbreak or other types types of uh, cyber incidents you may have cover. Now to get cover, you actually have to go through quite an extensive questionnaire mm. and your know, process to show that well actually you're a risk worth taking on. So I was going like, to ask like, yeah. well, like how low or high is the bar? I used to work yeah. with a colleague in a previous business I worked at and he was notorious for clicking on the stupidest um, uh, you know uh, prints I'm a I'm a prince who wants yeah. to deposit ten the euro email. Four one nine or scams. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like none of us could believe it, but nothing ever happened to him. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't disciplined. So how high or low is the bar? So the, the, it's improving dramatically from the underwriter's perspective because. Uh, you know, the insurance industry is driven by actuaries. They have to assess risk and determine mm. what the policy is going to be versus the amount they're going to have to pay out and what the excess and these things are. So they will go, before they take you on and offer you a cyber policy as an organization, they're going to determine, well, what is the risk profile here? Do these people take security seriously? Are they certified to a standard like ISO 27001? Do they have a security awareness campaign internally to keep their users educated? Do they test them? Do they do mm. phishing campaigns? If they do all of these sort of things, well, the risk isn't actually too bad. I might consider yeah. this risk and I might have a lower excess. But if I want to take on somebody else's risk, I say, well, uh, you know, they, they don't do these things so well. So I'm going to, just going to charge them a whopping great policy. Mm. I'm going to apply a massive excess Mm. so that they are going to have to suffer a lot of pain before they decide to draw down on my policy. Mm. Now, the policies are an emerging area, so the actuarial tables and the, the, the approach to policy pricing is evolving as well, and it's, it's changing quite dramatically. And I think one very interesting thing, and slightly off-topic here, mm. but in the area of cyber insurance, last year there was a massive ransomware um, outbreak across the globe for NotPetya. Yes. And many organizations suffered massive crippling losses. 
Uh, one particular one was uh, Mondelez, the uh, owner of um, Cadbury's, and they had a plant taken offline. And um, they, as a result of the being taken offline, they chocolate cooled in some of the equipment, and they suffered about 100 million in losses. They went to their uh, cyber policy, and they claimed it down, and um, Zurich was the underwriter. And Zurich have actually turned around now and refused to pay out on it, because it turns out it's alleged that NotPetya was uh, created by, allegedly, the Russian state targeting the Ukraine. Oh, yeah. And that is an act of war. Ah. And in most cyber insurance policies, and in a lot of ordinary insurance policies, act of wars are exempt from the payout requirements. Really? So they've actually refused and uh, reneged, uh, not reneged is probably the wrong word, but they, they've yeah. withdrawn the uh, payout on the back of the cyber insurance policy that they had agreed to pay on the basis of NotPetya's investigation showing it was an act of war. Wow. And that's going to be something, I think that's going to be a bigger issue as we, as we go through yeah. because we, we've talked a little bit before about the weaponization of mm -hmm. malware mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of malware and you know, cyber uh, issues are, are uncovered covered start with the nation state mm. they start with the intelligence um often offensive intelligence service not defensive uh developing uh, tools of their own uh, for espionage and these then get released we had this with the eternal blue mm. um package that was released for sale on the dark um side of the internet uh, last year which was what where um things like not petcha came from so as more and more of these tools come from the weaponization side of things, we're going to see a backlash from the cyber policies as to whether or not they'll pay out. Uh, in that case, do you happen to, you may or may not know, did Cadbury accept that or are they challenging it? Or? So they're, they're challenging it, but they, it is unlikely that they're going to be successful in the challenge right. because it is, while there has been no concrete proof, mm. it is fairly widely accepted that the way NotPetya started was, it was targeted at the um, Ministry of Customs and uh, mm. Finance, I think it was, in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yes, um, I remember. Yeah. And it targeted a piece of software that anybody who was doing import-export with Ukraine mm. had mm. to register uh, and, and supply uh, their, their details through. And that's how people like Maersk, the shipping company, yes, and various that. others got mm. caught because they had an office in the Ukraine and it started there and spread globally mm. from there. So it, th that, there's fairly strong you know, acceptance, but without mm. concrete evidence that this was... So in that case, then, it come, if, if it came down, for example, to a court case, it would come down to a matter of fact that the court would drive, but that would be like, you know, testimony and evidence and it would be experts uh, evidence and, and best practice this, and is all a, that this would stuff. be a civil suit yeah. so it, in, you know in the the, the, the burden of proof yeah. in a criminal case is um, you know, the, beyond all reasonable mm -hmm. doubt mm -hmm. in a civil case it's mm -hmm. the balance of probabilities Probability. yeah. so th that's where it is going to be I think a little more difficult for somebody who's complaining about a, yeah. an insurance company not paying out is that the probability is that it was then we don't have the actual mm. um, evidence because probably other nation states have that evidence yeah uh with other examples we've the Louth and Meath education training board which in 2017 i think was caught for around 250,000 euro but the interesting thing about that for me was that you know the Louth and Meath education training board has an annual budget of 115 million euro because it is responsible for the education of 35,000 students 16 uh, second level schools so again you know, 
something that comes in for a relatively small amount over a period of time you can easily see how that yeah. goes that goes under the radar and that's the thing it's you know the, because something like that is probably processing a very large number yes. of invoices yeah. and a lot of them would be for very large amounts mm-hmm. um, you know again it comes back to the, 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 the that kind of confidence trickster concept of you get the, the, the invoice in for a low enough amount that doesn't trigger an alarm um, and it likely is going to be something that we would buy that so yeah. let's just get, get it through and it, I, I do feel for um, a, a number of the people that this have happened to have been in the public sector um, we know there's been no recruitment in the public sector for like 11 years mm. through the, the cutbacks and the, the, the recovery, the crash. So they're, they're trying to do more with less people. You know, um, they, they have less resources um, and they're under huge pressure externally mm-hmm. to deliver services. So uh, the, exactly what you said a, a little while ago when we were talking about the accounts payable is that they're trying to quickly, quickly, quickly mm. do things. And if it looks right, it probably slips through. It probably slips and through. That's very difficult. Yeah, one of my favourite examples, maybe favourite is not the right word, is the case of a footballer called Stefan de, Stefan Degree, who is a Dutch footballer, played for Feyenoord, was bought by Lazio in 2014. I don't know what the price was. It was around 12 million euro. But apparently, the way these uh, transfer fees are done in football is if you buy a player for 20 million euro, you don't. The club doesn't pay the the selling club 20 million euro up front it's done in installments but somebody managed to convince Lazio the Roman team that they were the agent of this Dutch footballer Stefan Degree and they managed to con Lazio into paying them uh, 2 million euro 2 million euro into the wrong bank account <laughs> it's brilliant I mean you know, and I know it's an awful thing as you say it's almost with a wry smile yeah. and a small tinge of you know, gallows humour that, that, that it's funny but it's it's amazing and it comes back to that whole thing of it's a con man it's that ability to have the confidence and the uh, the language and you know what looks like the, the right terminology and yeah. inserting yourself into a conversation at the right time and um, there was one example that you were telling me about that I thought was really indicative of the patience and the skill and the long term thinking of some of these fraudsters I think it involved a uh, impersonating somebody in a legal firm and acquisition? Yeah, so a couple of years ago there was uh, one of the major law firms in Ireland and uh, they were acting uh, for uh, an organisation that was being acquired mm. and uh, as part of the acquisition there was a, a down payment and the down payment would have been around 4 million euro mm. and it, the what was incredible about this particular uh, piece of um, I suppose industrious criminal behavior was they spent many months researching and they, they, they had compromised the email system of the law firm, which was a business e- email compromise. It was a cloud-based mm-hmm. mail service that, that didn't have all the security controls that it should have had on, but it compromised them. And instead of doing anything like sending out you know, onward phishing attacks or doing other things and shouting about it and do, ma- making noise, they sat there. Mm. And they inserted rules. The minute they got in, they inserted rules which you know forwarded mails to external ma- uh, domains that had trigger words of interest. They deleted those forwarded mails from the sent items of the mailboxes that were being used immediately, so they never appeared anywhere. Mm. As they became more bold, they then said, "Okay, we're actually we see what's going on here." They they began to analyze the pattern of the emails and the communication that was going on, the name of the firm that was being acquired and who was doing the acquisition and who the different players were. They then went off and registered um, internet domains that were very similar in names. So where there might have been an I, they put in a one or an L in the domain name and registered these and then set up email systems at those domains. So they invested a little bit in doing this. 
And they then started getting emails forwarded from the compromised um, law firm to this and sent back in from the external domain as part of the conversation and actually got the foreign domain included now. But they, they created these rules with um, forwarding and deletion to, to keep it all clean. And the whole thing was to um, make a change of a bank account at the time that the, uh, the down payment was to be uh, finally closed out. And it came within about half an hour to an hour of being successful. And it, ha- it didn't work in the end because one of the partners from the law firm was delayed on a flight yeah. to actually do the final bank approval for the transfer of payment. But the account details had been changed, but he didn't get off the plane in time to make the payment that day. And somebody else spotted that there had been a change because mm. he, sent, he sent a mail saying, sorry, I didn't get to make the transfer today. And, and the people who he really wanted, to, he sent by text, mm. who were involved. And they said, we didn't ask for anything. Right. And they said, but you, I've got your email here. Yeah. And that's how they caught it. So it was a flight delay ended up in the transaction not being completed during the business day and a text message um, being sent out of band out of the normal mm. communication that triggered it. But the, the point you're making here is that the, there were four people involved. They were Irish people. Mm-hmm. Um, they were qualified uh, third levels and they had spent time infiltrating the system watching and looking at the, the transaction as it was unfolding and picking their moment to go and make the change. And people believed that they had been watching the, um, the individuals mm. with their speaking engagements, um, their LinkedIn profiles, what they were doing over the, the, their travel plans, all of these sort of things that they're actually profiling. So you know, this is not a Hollywood scenario that plays out you know, in uh, you know, New York with uh, you know, the, the stock exchange. This is actually happening here in our local economy. It's really and interesting when you, to think about the profile of the scammers here. Like we're used to, as you said, the 419 scammers, which is typically, hi, I'm a badly spelled email. Hi, I'm a Nigerian prince and I need to park uh, 15 million euro. It'll only be resting in your account. Um, <laughs> but uh, for that, I'll pay you, you know, 20 grand. Just give me your bank account details. Um, although, although I did talk to uh, Detective Chief Superintendent Pat Lorden, who's one of the police in Ireland, the Gardaí, who typically gets involved with uh, investigating uh, these incidents and these crimes. He says he's about one or two incidents a week that he, mm. he looks at. Uh, it's the National Crime Intel, Financial Intelligence Unit, I think uh, he's out of. But he was saying, making the point that uh, students are getting caught up as money mules and it's almost the same motivation that they're given. Somebody approaches him and says, um, I, I, am, I, I need a bank account to put external investment into i i'm having a bit of red tape problems can i use your bank account for a week i'll pay you 500 euro and he's saying that a lot he's saying that he's aware of hundreds of student accounts in ireland that have been uh compromised this and he also thinks he says there are prosecutions now starting of the students because when i asked him was it possible that they don't really know what's going on or this is kind of innocent naive he was kind of thinking, he's saying, look, no, not really. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, listen, I need to use your bank account to put 20 grand in, you're not going to, assume, I mean, you don't know that. And it's a little bit like buyer beware. Yeah. You know, the, the student has to be a little bit aware of this. And the mule accounts, I mean, if we come back to the mechanics mm. of, you know, how do you get this money out? So say somebody has hit, like you, you mentioned, uh, the Loud Meath Educate Together board, mm. but we also remember Meath County Council got hit there um, two years ago for 4 million, uh, 4.3 million. They got hit for in a CEO invoice fraud. Oh. 
only got about 3.8 of it back last year. Ah. So they were loaded out for two years. But in, in that, in, mm. what, what happened with, um, with these sort of ones, when they get that volume of money, yeah. think about how do they transfer, transfer it? What do they do? Yes. So they, they, they've, they've created one account, and it might be a Mule account to start with, with a student or somebody, but it's got to be something they can trust where the yeah. large vol- value goes in. But rapidly, they want to spread it out to hundreds of other accounts. And then they want to spread it from there outside the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they want to go outside of Europe. Mm -hmm. Because there's agreement between central banks across Europe Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can put a freeze on a bank account Mm -hmm. in another European jurisdiction where we we see the money is being transferred to, to stop it going onwardly. But what they are trying to do is they're going to use the Mule accounts get them to transfer to a Western Union account or to another money transfer account into cryptocurrencies. But you got to do it in smaller amounts. Yep. You can't do a 4 million transfer mm. from one account into a crypto account or something like that. Mm. So this is where the mules come in very importantly. And the speed with which, because um, the, the logistics and the coordination is phenomenal, the speed with which they get the money out of the main account to the mules and distribute them and it's all like a, a web a network of the money and they're transferring out within seconds because they've everything lined up and ready to go mm-hmm. when they get the money and they know exactly what's happening so it's a it's a way of like laundering the old days yeah. you know splitting the bags yeah. uh, the money mm-hmm. bundles and shrink wrapping them and getting the bundles out to people and sending them out more bundles and putting them through you know different uh, retail outlets to to clean the money mm-hmm. This is what they're doing with the electronic money now with Mule accounts and then getting them out to... uh, What you need to do is break the electronic chain. Mm. And this is where cryptocurrencies come in particularly because once it goes into a wallet and comes out of a different wallet, the chain is broken. Very difficult. There is nothing nothing really anybody anywhere in, in any jurisdiction is doing. And we're even seeing in Ireland now... ATMs that you can withdraw uh, cash from using your Bitcoin. Mm. So, you know, very quickly you get a mechanism for getting cash cleaned Mm. completely and very quickly. Now, the ATM is a slow way and a small value way of doing it, but it's just, it shows you what is happening. Yeah. Yeah, uh, good point. And uh, Detective Chief Inspector Pat Lorden was saying that they do have good understandings with some of the police forces, some of the other FIUs in other countries. He, he mentioned Hong Kong as well. He said they've mm. built up a good relationship there. But he said, largely speaking, if it ends up in Asia or uh, particularly outside the EU, after a couple of days, the money's gone, it's probably gone. It's the, yeah. the chances of getting it back are kind of very, very limited. But just to bring back to the uh, profile of the people who are doing this, I had an interesting conversation with um, Neve Davenport from the, uh, who does she work for? BPFI. Again? Yes, that's BPFI. The Bank of Payments Federation. That's right. And she was making the point, I think you've made this point as well, uh, that f- when they go in and enter an email conversation or a company network, they really study it down to the last detail to the point where they will analyze the CEO's tone mm. in, in a, an email, see if they make common spelling mistakes and make those same spelling mistakes. And it, that all comes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, not raising alarms, mm. not raising triggers. And, you know, the, the 419ers were easy to identify before. Mm. You, you could quit it pretty quickly. And the effort of investment and the training and the reconnaissance, and it, it is reconnaissance. I know we're talking about mil- militaristic 
terms here, but this is somebody getting in behind your enemy lines. This is you know into yeah. your defended defense area, and they are now determining that you know that they can look at you know the pattern of behavior, how people communicate. Is it a uh, you know a, a masterly? Is it an overtone? Is it you know instructive? Is it collegial? Mm. Um, you know th- those kind of what kind of words will be used? Uh, what forms are even used? Because you know once they get in, they can say, well, I'll take a copy of that form yeah. and I'll modify it and I'll send in my own version of it. This is, I mean, it's not quite Ocean's Eleven, but you know, it's a big step up from the yeah. kind of scammers we're used to thinking and about. And I, I think you know, said it a couple of times. They get in and they're doing this from the inside. And that's been the big change. So what has, um, you know, I suppose, catapulted this up in the, in the volumes that, you know, Chief Inspector Pat Lorden was talking about and various others is that it's, I think one of the big things is the shift to cloud services mm-hmm. has been transformative because for the uh, hackers. Because when I've had my little mail server in my small, you know, uh, Connors widget manufacturer, um, it's been difficult enough to get in at that. You know, you had to get mm-hmm. a virus or something on my machine and get it. But I've decided now that I don't want to keep running a server in my office. I don't want, I want to get up in the cloud. I don't want to have to worry about backup. I don't have to worry about the server failing or all these kind Absolutely. of things. So cloud is the right thing. Mm. And it makes so much sense. But if you don't do it right, you're worse off. Mm. And I think there's a big shift for people today to race to the cloud for all the, the value-based um, propositions. But that's... that's, that's happened and it's happening and it's, that's never going to go back like, it's not but the, the where people can do something about it is implement the security controls that the cloud providers give you business email compromise is virtually impossible if you implement multi-factor authentication mm-hmm. Google don't charge you for it Microsoft don't charge you for it it's there it's an option people don't people like don't. to they, 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 they have some weird hang up about doing that though uh, they just People get annoyed with passwords anyway, and then they're told that they need to to uh, add some other element to it, like a text message or a biometric uh, signature. I mean, try to get companies to invest in biometrics anyway. Mm. There's there's all sorts of controversy around that. But I think um, that the the multi-factor thing has moved on a lot. I mean, if you look at both Google and Microsoft, mm-hmm. they now have an app where you just click approve yeah. from your phone. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to key in the digits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's right. That, yeah. that, that, that speeds it up, so that's not so bad. And then you can actually configure it so, well, I, I won't actually t- ask you for that every time. Mm. It's only every time you appear somewhere new. Mm-hmm. So if I log on to a new PC for my, my web-based email, that's, I'll only get asked that one time mm-hmm. for multi-factor authentication. Every other time I won't. And that's good mm-hmm. because it's only when somebody else logs on from their web browser in the Ukraine or in Australia or in China or in America that at the same time that that's where there's there's actually a suspicion that there's something going on. And I think Microsoft have a brilliant one. They call it impossible travel. If there's a log on to my email account in Dublin and within 15 minutes there's one in India, that's yeah. impossible travel. Right. So that means that somebody is scamming me. Something right. suspicious is going on. But mm-hmm. my account can't be used at the same time, the same password mm-hmm. in with impossible travel. I mean, so there, these controls are getting better. Yeah, there has to be a happy medium between that, which makes sense and helps the company, and the idiotic banking protocols where when, when I go to the States, uh, for one week, at least three times, I will get a text from my bank, 
to tell me that uh, my bank has been, my card has been put on hold because of suspicious activity of me buying a coffee in a Starbucks in Chicago, you know. Um, And and, and that's where I think their systems are are catching up too slowly because... Oh, oh, and by the way, just while I'm on that mini rant, um, uh, they send you a text. Now, what do I do when I go to the States? Typically, I will get another SIM card there or I will use something that is not my SIM card, my cellular mobile SIM card from Ireland, because it costs an absolute fortune to roam. Yet the only way they can tell me is to send me a text on my cellular channel so anyway um, i wish they would do a better job and they really do need to catch up on that because uh, if you look back to the uh, case of both google and microsoft they've done it well yeah they've got notifications for apps on their devices you know they they've overcome the stumbling blocks that the banks haven't that mm. the financial services guys are still a little bit behind on so it's doable mm. it's doable very cost effective because these guys do it for free the, so, thi- the thing is though that just going taking a step back going back to first principles i mean how would a scammer or a fraudster know who the supplier of a company is oh my god just go on yeah. to linkedin i mean every day of the week uh, in the section of the irish independent that i work in the business section we have articles about contract wins, deal announcements, deal announcements, yeah. appointments. The amount of information that is that you could construct an app accurate wall chart of not only who works in a company, but also the major deals and the major vendors they have just by like doing a trawl of Google News and LinkedIn. But if you look at the public sector, yeah. Most of the public sector bodies publish, publish public their, their suppliers. Yeah. And they even publish the amounts. Yeah, yeah. So you could actually, at a really simple level, for mm. every, and you look at the hundreds of public sector bodies we have across Ireland, mm-hmm. local authorities, educated together boards, yeah. um, you know, the Money Advice Bureau services, like there's mm. dozens and dozens and mm. dozens of you know, public sector bodies. And all of them, for transparency, mm. um, publish every year mm-hmm. the suppliers to them, people who have won contracts, but they publish the amounts and the type of service that they're, that they're actually mm-hmm. getting. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a massive amount of information out there mm-hmm. for people who want want to go and uh, impersonate and this is why there's more pressure I think back on these organisations who are publishing their suppliers to make sure they manage the procurement process and the payment processes and the change to the um, accounting systems that they're using that they have simple um, administrative processes Mm. in place to make sure they're uh, uh, approvals and even if we have those systems in place there's always going to be an X factor particularly in Ireland for blagging like every year in the annual report of the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon, there's always a bit in it about prosecutions or actions taken against, for example, the likes of private investigators. Because one of the most common ways, um, one of the common problems with data protection in public sector bodies in Ireland has been traditionally associated with the likes of the Department of Social Protection, where typically a credit union or or an insurance company will hire a a private investigator to you know to disprove or to prove that a customer of theirs is basically being fraudulent they yeah. maybe they got in a crash but they're out playing football maybe they're uh, claiming welfare but they uh, are working five jobs and what happens with the private investigator will sometimes go and blag and that's the word they use yeah. in the report blag details from the department of social protection uh, for this example comes down to the social engineering <coughs> yeah and but the point i was going to yeah. make ju- just it was that no matter what systems are in place often a smooth-talking local Don Draper type will still manage to get sort of past systems. And that's one of the things that, you know, we work very closely with our clients on in raising awareness Mm. because um, to come back to the Bruce Schneier uh, comment about amateurs, hack computers and professionals, hack humans, 
we're in an arms race. We have an incredibly motivated um, cyber criminal, uh, you know, suite of gangs across the, the across the globe, mm. uh, very heavily resourced, um, massively uh, uh, capable, and the technology industry are responding to them. They're reacting and they're trying to get defenses up. So they're on the losing side of the arms race. And you know, you, you mentioned the public sector. If you look at the procurement process in the public sector, it makes it even more difficult for them because they have to go to mark and they have to do an evaluation. So every time a new threat comes up, they have to get a new defense mechanism. So our thing is that, and it comes back to what we're talking about here, is that actually people, there used to be an old adage that the weakest security link in any organization was the interface between the chair and the keyboard, mm -hmm. the human. They were the people who were going to get you a knacker, they're going to make a mistake, they're going to click on the link and they're going to do those things. And some of that's true. We but need we'll, Skynet, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> but we're saying it's the other way around. Yeah. You should be the human firewall. Mm -hmm. You are the person who's going to make the smart decision. Because when you see, we want to inform users, we want to educate them, we want to empower them, we want to give them some capability and your know, tools when they look at an email that comes in, when they look at a letter coming in to change a bank account details, when they look at a, a mm. website that they're going to, that they've got a couple of little triggers to look at things it's slightly more suspiciously, with slightly more awareness, and then they will make the smart decision for you. Mm -hmm. That they have to understand that they are, and you empower them again to understand that this is my job. You know, if I, you know, I'm responsible for fraud here, it could cost me my job because my employer might lose their money, you know, lose all mm. the cash they have. I mean, that's a different discussion for a different day. But I think traditionally it's fair to say in Ireland and elsewhere that if you are the weak link in the company that lets uh, a fraudster through, or like my old colleague who kept clicking on the Nigerian prince um, scams, traditionally in Ireland. Nothing had, there has not really been yeah. massive consequences for The accountability for has been low yeah. at the individual Quite level. Low, yeah. and, uh, now, GDPR yeah. in the data privacy uh, field has kind of given that a bit of a boot up the arse because <laughs> it has made companies, well, in theory it has. Organizations, um, but not individuals. Organizations, not, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, you know, unless you're an officer of the company and you can be shown uh, yeah. through something, a uh, breach that you are directly mm, responsible mm, mm. Um, through an action or decision you made, it's only then that they can actually go after you as an individual as opposed to the organization. But I, I, I think there's a generate, there might be a generation thing too where this will take 10 years or 15 years because yeah. you still have a majority of directors in Ireland, arguably, this is now this is just kind of off the top of my head, but I, from my experience, there's still middle-aged men, mostly fifties, sixties, who still, for whom the phrase. Asher, now hang on a second. That's tech, sure. We're not tech yeah. That still kind of sounds legitimate. Now you tell yeah. you you say that to somebody in their thirties, it holds a lot less currency. It does. You know. Now I would say, and uh, this is from ex some experience <coughs> recently dealing with um, you know uh, some lecturing in the Institute of Directors mm -hmm. and dealing with directors, they are more afraid. And they are more aware of the cyber issues because they have, the profile has been raised. Exactly the cases that you've uh, read out mm -hmm. there. Um, we have, we have a, a small enough number of directors spread across a very large number of companies in Ireland. So you typically have people who have multiple directorships. Mm -hmm. And if they have an incident in one of those companies, the first question they ask in the boards they get back to in the other ones is, 
what are you doing about this? Mm. Because they've been caught once. Mm. So it is, you're right, it has been very slow. And I have a slide that I put into some of my security awareness uh, sessions, and it's two pictures. One is an IT manager pleading on his knees, looking for resources from a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. saying, I need something to do with it for IT security. I need to protect, I need more resources, I need more equipment, I need more investment. The flip side now is on that is I've got a director pointing down at the IT manager and the IT security guy saying, what are you doing to protect me and my organization, the stakeholders? Mm. Because there is a little bit more awareness coming at that level, but it's slow. Mm. There isn't accountability for people who are, respons- who are responsible for creating a problem. Um, but I think that by educating the users and showing them that they have a, a part to play in this, and they actually do feel a little bit empowered by, by not being treated as dummies, but by being, being treated, and I call them the human firewalls. Mm. And I said, you're going to make a smart decision. You're mm. going to save yourself, your, yourself and your company a lot of money, and you're going to prevent something happening. And that's something that they like the idea and the sound of. And I think that, that you know, if you can get some people on board with that, then the colleague of yours becomes the outlier. Mm. You know, he, Hopefully. You know, he Hopefully. becomes shunned, we hope, by the rest of the community. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I think I've, I've been a little bit hard and heartless in reason because I've always had that view. Maybe it's because of what I do for a living and what I write about. I do sort of have a view that it's not really acceptable in the modern age not to know how to, to use a mobile phone or not to know how to use a, a computer if you're at work. It's a basic competency. It's like spelling or something. Like that. that That would be my view. Like, I've often been tutted and lectured, but now, come on, that's being very unfair. We're not, we can't all be tech experts. It's not a tech expert to know how to make a phone call or send an email. Yeah. I, I and I, I think that would be accepted yeah. now, but 10 years ago, that, that was, it was a lonely yeah. path I was uh, treading there. Anyway, we do have yeah. to leave it there, but uh, Connor Flynn, Managing Director of ISAS, Information Security Assurance Services, thank you very much for coming into studio today for those excellent uh, insights. And thanks also to Magnet Networks, Connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland for sponsoring this podcast. That is all we have time for this week. Folks, I'm Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. The Big Tech Podcast, in proud association with Magnet Networks, connecting businesses virtually anywhere in Ireland.